0: Thank you. Let me tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called... Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, Oh, it's still winter in Chicago, but I'm cheerful, (laughs) because spring will come eventually, probably. You know, it's kind of funny, spring and fall in Chicago is is pretty glorious and lasts a long time. Spring is usually about two hours in an afternoon, and then it's summer. (laughs) But sometimes it decides to be winter again. Chicago, the saying is, if you don't like the weather, wait an hour. Oh, but that's that's just fine with... I See, I'm working real hard on being optimistic. Let's pray. That will help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Something about which I can always be be optimistic. Okay, and now the search, the endless search for my mouse begins. (sighs) Himmel, where did I put the mouse? No, uh, uh, one of my correspondents (laughs) reminds me that it's really called the cursor, but... When I hear cursor, that's what you want to do with the mouse half the time. All right, but moving along. Just kidding. I don't get it. Oh, I oh, don't, don't get, get it. it. Well, it's subtle, Homer. It's subtle. All right. Today is Thursday of the first week in Lent, and we begin the book of Esther. And I want to talk about the book of Esther in general. <clears throat> the book of Esther in general is 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 well will I'll talk about the Feast of Purim, which is a Jewish feast in which the entire scroll of the book of Esther is is read. So we'll talk about that then. But the book of Esther is an interesting book because it's, it, it's, uh, there really kind of uh, one version of it and the expanded version of it, the, um, we Catholics go use the Septuagint version uh, as canonical, and we have a great deal more of the Book of Esther in the canonical version. Um, there are an additional six chapters in the Book of Esther in the Septuagint. That was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and um, the those were were. Uh, included in Jerome's Vulgate, and they've been included in uh, the Dewey Reams Bible, and so on. Uh, so we have those extra chapters. But I think if you take those chapters out, interestingly, there are two books in the Bible. Now, this is the the Hebrew text of, I'm talking about, of the book of Esther. Uh, the the Hebrew text um, and the the... the of the book of Esther and the song of songs are the only books in the Bible that don't mention God Uh, in, in, in the reading we have today, I believe that's part of one of the extra six chapters that we have. That is a prayer, but the Hebrew text does not, it's fascinating, doesn't mention God. So why would that book be in the Bible? Well, I think you probably know the story of the book of Esther. If not, you should get in touch with it. Now there's great, Great debate about whether this is historical or it's kind of a a fictional novel or an expansion of some historical incident. Who knows? I wasn't there. I know the Holy Spirit wrote it and put it in the Holy Scriptures for a reason. And to me, the center point, the high point of the book of Esther is when Esther, who's an orphan girl who is raised by her older cousin Mordecai, he, well, there's a search for women for the harem of the king of Persia, which today is, we call Iran. And uh, this may be Xerxes. People try to date uh, the occurrence of the book of Esther and say the king mentioned is Xerxes or, or uh, someone else. Who knows? Uh, but um, in this search, all the beautiful girls of the empire are brought to the court, and poor Esther, who's a little Jewish girl, uh, whose Jewish name is Hadassah. Esther is a Persian name from the goddess Ishtar, probably, which is interesting that a goddess name is the name of one of the books of the Bible. It, we wouldn't think that would happen. Well, her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Well, Hadassah is brought to the court called es- Ishtar, Esther, and then uh, she becomes one of the favored wives of the king. And there is a fellow named Mordeca- or named Haman who's very arrogant, who hates the Jews because a Jew named Mordecai, the cousin who raised Esther, uh, he's not going to bow down to to, uh, Haman. And Haman decides to have all the Jews killed. And this is the story of how the Jews are rescued by by Esther. This unfortunate, from her view, uh, this unfortunate inclusion in a harem of of a pagan and being given a pagan name and all of that, these horrible things that have happened to her. Well, God has put her in a position where she can save the nation, save all the Jews in the empire. And to me, the center spot of of the book is where her cousin Mordecai says, just because you live in the palace and just because of your exalted station, do not think you will ultimately escape the doom that has come upon our people. It will eventually catch up to you. I think those are very, very important words to, to hear. That that um, What's the saying? They came for the, the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't worry. Then they came for the, the uh, um, people of color. I wasn't a person of color. I didn't worry. Then they came for the Protestants. I'm not a Protestant, so I didn't worry. Then they came for the Catholics, and, well, there was no one to help me. I think we have to understand that 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 just because people are different from us, or they look different from us, uh, or they have a different theology than we do, they are no less human. And this is this is the I think part of the point of the Book of Esther is that um, we're in this together. Now, this is applied to the 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 the, the Jews in exile. Uh, who still lived in exile in, the, in what was then the Persian Empire, which succeeded uh, to the Babylonian Empire. Um, but I think that the real point of that is don't just assume that you're safe uh, or that, that, that other people have no demands on you. Again, a couple times in the past week I, I mentioned that one of the first questions is in Scripture is, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer of Christ on the cross is, yes, you are. Um, we are, we are called as Christians not simply to go to heaven, but to be the servants of the world that God loves, not the world that people love, but the world as God sees it. Um, I think it's an important idea. So that said, uh, let's, let's move on here. Let me look at the clock here and wonder what time I am and, uh, and, and find out oh, once again... I've lost my mouse. You know, this makes me crazy. I don't know why I lose my mouse all the time. Oh, well. Good grief. Good grief. It'll show up eventually. Ah, I th- ah there it is on that screen over there. Excellent. I have, I'm have. i actually looking at four different screens at the moment. Two are blank and two have stuff on them. And the mouse goes and hides, the cursor goes and hides in different places. <laughs> Which is why I think maybe I should call it the cursor. Moving along here. All right. I got the mouse. Let us go now to um, the text of the gospel. All right. Let's see here. The text of the gospel is Matthew, the 7th chapter, the 7th verse and following. Jesus said to his disciples, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Who's he saying this to? His disciples. That's the first word we got to look at. What does disciple mean? It means student. Student. Are you a disciple? This doesn't apply to you or to me, unless you and I are disciples of the Lord. Think about it. Jesus said to his disciples. He didn't say to the multitude. He didn't say to the Pharisees. He didn't say to me as an individual, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus said to his disciples, if you are not the disciple, if you are not the student of the Lord, then... Don't bother with this. It's not for you. But I thought Jesus was there for everyone. Yes, he is there for everyone. But there are some things that he demands of his disciples. And this is a demand. He's saying to them, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. What's he talking about? He's really talking about wisdom. Don't forget the original sin. The sin of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> that... Eve looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and said it was good for the the uh, uh, for food and for the gaining of knowledge, or some some text translated wisdom. Certainly not the wisdom from above, and she she wanted to know more than God was pleased to tell her at the time. She didn't want to ask. She didn't want to seek. She didn't want to knock. She wanted it all right there. This is, in a sense, a remedy for original sin. When I hear this, I think, oh, if I ask, God will give me what I want. Where does it say that in the text? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. It doesn't say that what you ask for will be given to you, but what God has for you will be given to you. Uh, We saw that, was it yesterday, the day before? When you pray, pray in these words because your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Well, then why bother to ask Him? Well, because God is not going to give, God is not going to do His perfect will in your life unless you ask. So what this text, I think, is saying isn't saying this is, these are, this is magic, that if you just ask, God will give you what you want. No, if you just ask, God will give you what He wants. Seek and you will find. Are you seeking or are you just demanding? Knock and the door will be open to you. There's an old Pentecostal saying, don't push on a door. If it's locked, it's locked for a reason. Knock and the door will be open to you. You don't push on it, you knock. This is another asking. Everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you would hand his son a stone? When he asks for a loaf of bread. You see those, those stones in the desert that have been worn down by years of erosion? They really look like nice, crunchy loaves of bread from a distance. Except you bite into one, you'll break your teeth. Uh, who would ask for a fish? Uh, who would give his child a snake when he asked for a fish? Well, I heard one commentary about this. There are water snakes and there are eels, which look like snakes, but they're not kosher. Snakes and eels are not kosher. Fish are. For a fish to be kosher, it must have, I believe, scales and fins and gills. If it doesn't have those, like shrimp and crab and lobster and oysters, those are not kosher. You can't eat them if you're Jewish. Uh, it has to have uh, fins and fins and scales, uh, or gills. Is it gills and scales or fins? and scales? It has to be that kind of fish. <laughs> so, an eel. It's more like a snake than it is a fish. If you give I, I don't have ever had eel. I had it once. I think it's truly horrible, but that's just me. Well, besides being truly horrible, it's not kosher. It doesn't have scales. So if your son asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him something he can't eat. That's the point of it. That, that we ask for things that are inedible. God wants to give us something that will build us up that is edible that, that will strengthen us. And we want, you know, left to our own devices, as someone said, we'll go straight for the small potatoes. If you then who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your? Oh, by the way, in the, this version of this in the Gospel of Luke, uh, he says, "Who, if his if his son asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion?" You know, those scorpions all balled up; they look they look like um, a little egg. Uh, uh, Well, except you pick one up thinking it's an egg. It's going to sting you and make you very sick, if not kill you. So the point of this is God is going to give you what you need and what is good for you, even if you ask for things that are not. This ask and it will be given to you isn't automatic. Yeah, Jesus said, I'll get whatever I want. No, Santa Claus says that. St. Nicholas doesn't even say that. The real Santa Claus moving along here. So uh, if you then Luke, in the Lucan version, it adds, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There you go. And then he adds, do to others what you would have them do to you. This is a fascinating thing. Uh, I remember when I shared this idea with, with uh, Rabbi Lefkowitz, and, of course, he was very good in New Testament. He'd read it thoroughly. Um, <clears throat> I said, Jesus is the only one of the great teachers of history. If, if Jesus were not who we Christians believe him to be, he would still be one of the most remarkable teachers. He's the only one of the great teachers. This, this idea, what you hate do to no one, it's a universal uh, saying. But Jesus says it in a positive way. He says, do to others what you would have them do to you. <sighs> Rabbi Lefkowitz said, that's awful. How do you know what I like? You know, what you hate do to no one, that makes sense. But you're going you're gonna to do what you like for me? He has a point there. Now, you cannot love someone unless you hear them. My dear sister, who has gone to the Lord, when she would visit, she would arrange my spice cabinet the right way. It took me two weeks to find the oregano. Have you ever had someone, you're trying to untangle the rosary or a string or something, and a person comes and says, here, give me that, I'll do it. You want to just Punch them. You've been working on this. You cannot love someone. You cannot help someone until you've listened to them. The great commandment, of course, we know is love God and love your neighbor. No, it's not. The great commandment starts with Hero Israel. And I interpret that as sit down, shut up, and listen. I'm God, you're not. You cannot even love God until you've heard him. Let me help you, God. I have known, uh, Pentecostal preachers used to call them God's little helpers. They want to help, and they get in the way of everything in the parish. They they make a mess of it. You cannot love someone until you can hear them. You can't even love God unless you listen to him. So the point is, I want here, I'm going to help you. You do this, you know. <laughs> I've known people who caused other people great illness by telling them what they should eat and what they shouldn't. Well, moving along here, uh, um, if you want to help someone, pray for them first. Say, Lord, what, what, what do they need? Listen to them, listen to the Lord, and then respectfully and lovingly say, you know, I have really been praying for you, and I think maybe this is what the Lord wants for you. Instead of, here, do this. This is what's good for you. Rabbi Lefkowitz was absolutely right. You don't know what is good for other people unless you've listened to God and to them. Now, all of this, ask and it will be given to you, it's all, I have all these needs. But if I hear God, then I'll get the answer. If I'm patient enough to listen to God and to wait on what he's going to give, and that applies to our relationship to other people. So to just understand that to, to love someone you need to hear them first and you need to hear God. It's a tall Lord don't just jump in and say this is what you need to do. How do you know what they need to do? I barely know what I need to do. With that thought let us go to a break. We'll come back with some letters and we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149-888-914-9149. And the door shall be opened. battling addictions our sponsor st gregory recovery center can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life information at relevant gregory that's relevant gregory it's been good to you and me let's learn to live Detroit! Detroit! Welcome! It's 10.30 a.m., right? 10.30. And a few FM stations. Detroit is near and dear to my heart because when we got off the boat, it was docked in the Detroit River. My, my great, 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 great umpteen times aunt, uh, what was her name? Rickenbacker. Uh, Reichenbach. Uh, oh, I can't think of her first name. But uh, she was among the first Germans in Detroit. And my family just kept coming the whole 19th century. So, uh, uh, yeah, my, my, my people were from Detroit, and uh, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Detroit. So, welcome, Detroit. Uh, why can't I think of, uh, oh, oh, was it meet? No, that's different. Never mind. Trust me, ancestors. It'll come to me when the cheese when I get the cheese back on a cracker. All right, that said, let us go to letters. I got the mouse. I've I've got a stranglehold on it. All right, now this is uh, from. uh, Okay, who's this from? This is from uh, John in Philadelphia. The gospel gives a perfect description of someone having a grand mal seizure. Uh, This would uh, not be related to mental illness. Uh, So. Uh, this I think this was the story of the of the boy who was the demons threw him into the fire again you know I wasn't there the, the scripture says it was a demon and uh, Jesus cast the demon out so it may not have been a medical condition at all it's interesting with a demonic possession the little I know about it again I wasn't an exorcist I have assisted at exorcism but I have never been an exorcist. I'll never forget uh, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, that was just the salt shaker. I'll never forget when a, a mother came into the sacristy and asked if her, she was very worried about demonic influence in the life of her child and he was looking at all those comic books that all these these um, scary superheroes and you know, all that sort of stuff. And I still want to say, lady, if I could cast that demon out, <laughs> I'd be rich. Come out demon of, of male adolescence. I'm kidding. Humor, I hope. Well, you know, I wasn't there, uh, but it is very interesting that that, uh, at least in my experience, if something is truly demonic, there is an immediate cessation of symptoms. Now, someone may have a mental dysfunction uh, or or uh, um, a condition that persists that is that is organic in nature. But it's very interesting to me that when something is genuinely demonic, at least in my very limited experience, that there's an immediate cessation of symptoms. So I, I, I don't know if the scriptures are describing a seizure. It certainly sounds like it. And again, there is a continuum. The devil really enjoys human suffering, whether that comes from illness or sin or uh, 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 deprivation or possession devil enjoys the whole schmear. Uh, so uh, I think we look at these things as, uh, as on a continuum. Is this demonic? In what sense is it demonic? So I, I don't know, but very interesting. So, John, thank you. Uh, uh, and I think if I'm reading properly, I think John has uh, credentials as a medical person. And it, it does sound like an epileptic seizure. Uh, and in what sense that's demonic, I don't know. All right, um, moving along, and that you know, I don't want anyone to say, "Well, Father Simon said that epilepsy is demonic." No, I did not. It's not demonic. It's 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 usually genuinely physical in nature. Um, genuine epilepsy is a is an organic condition, uh, but I think we have to realize we live in a fallen creation because of of well, the fall of Adam and Eve, and and that giving over to, to the power of the enemy. So uh, thanks for the, the, uh, the heads up there. All right, let's see here. Now, the next one I got is uh, uh, from, uh, okay, <laughs> this is uh, uh, from a listener. It's kind of, it, it was a calling question, but where in the Bible does it say that angels and humans are immortal? It says it all over the place. But the one passage that I I want to quote is Matthew 25, 41. Uh, This is about the sheep and the goats that that, that, uh, uh, when did, you know, the the last judgment, when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? Uh, And uh, the king will say, this is the last judgment, and the king will say, truly, whatever you did for me Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Well, he says to those who are uh, uh, condemned, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So one, I think, can infer from this that if those who sin are eternally, that is timelessly, Uh, uh, subject to the fires of hell? Well, that the human soul and the angels are, in fact, immortal, eternal. Uh, If they can be subject to eternal fire, then I suppose that makes them immortal. I'm sure there are more pleasant uh, examples of this, but that was the one that occurred to me. So I hope that answers your question. All right, moving along. I got another letter here. This is... um, Uh, My question is, how do you ask a saint to pray for you? I understand the Hail Mary and use it. But I fumble my words when trying to ask a saint to pray. Well, you know, we have the custom in the Catholic Church of special uh, um, uh, patron saints for things. For instance, St. Anthony, (laughs) for some reason, the patron saint of those things that are lost. St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes. Uh, And what's another good saint? St. Christopher, who has not been demoted? Trust me. Well, there are questions about his his uh, what's the word his his historical condition. But Saint Christopher probably existed, and we ask him to protect us in travel. Uh, uh, so we have patron saints. Uh, who's this? The, the the new guy who's the patron saint of of uh, computers. He's an... He's blessed of, Carlo Acutis. Blessed Carlo Acutis. Uh, he's He was a young man, a computer whiz, and he's one of them Italians. He has that's a right. Smart, that's a voice in my head saying, that's right, he's an Italian, too. Half Italian. <laughs> me, me, me. <laughs> well, yes, you. Moving along. So we have these patron saints, and you just say, oh, blessed Carlo, please help me with this computer mess. Remember, was it yesterday we had the text about don't don't think that by by the multiplication of words you'll be heard. You just you know life is meant to be a conversation with Christ with an occasional comment to his friends. Why not? So it can be very simple. You know my prayer to Saint Anthony when I can't find something it's terrible theology and it always works. Saint Anthony, please help. That's my prayer to Saint Anthony and. As I said, the theology of it is just awful, and it never seems to fail. So, at least for me, I think God is just sort of tweaking me, tweaking my nose with that one. All right. So, you pray very simply. Uh, prayer is conversation with God and the saints. And do you address your friends and your family with, now? Let me get the proper words to say good morning to my mother. Good morning, dear mother, in the kitchen. No, you don't. You say hi, ma. This will do for the saints too. There are more formal prayers. and When you're praying with other people, the formal prayers are very helpful and useful so you can pray together. And in liturgical prayer, it is very formal because liturgy, in essence, is a covenant ceremony, especially the liturgy of the Eucharist. So you want it to be exact. So, But when you're praying just on your own, any words will do because, well, you know, there's no way you're going to impress God or the saints. They know you for who for you are. They know you for who you are. Let's see here. All right. All right. This is Oh, by the way, there are lots of lines open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Oh dear, now this one is going to push my buttons. Delia, this is from Delia And she says, my daughter, who is 10 years old, became an altar server around one year ago. In the past couple months, I have read a book, Get Us Out of Here, by Nick Elsie and Maria Sims that stated that no female should be near the altar at church. I know growing up that there were only altar boys. After reading this, I have explained to her, and she understands, but I feel she is confused about this. How do you feel about this? Should females be altar servers too? I have a view of this that is absolutely contrarian. Absolutely. I am opposed to altar children. The reason that there were altar boys goes back for historical reasons to the early church. That the orders of—there of, were seven essential orders. Actually, you could—well, yeah, let's, let's keep it at seven. You had the porter, who was basically the janitor, the lector, who made sure the scriptures were publicly read because many people were illiterate and if you wanted to read the Bible, you had to have someone read it to you, the porter, the lector, then the exorcist, who assisted in baptism, especially with the casting out of demons, and the acolyte, who was an assistant to the clergy and often could function, as I understood, as Eucharistic, extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist, especially for those people who were in prison. And those would tend to be younger people. We have the story of St. Tarsissus, who as a child could get into a prison. The Romans were were different about prison security than we are. Then you had subdeacon, deacon, deacon and priest who had liturgical roles. Acolytes had a liturgical role too. And you had these essential orders— And you advance. The Romans had this idea of the cursus honorum, the course of honors. And you advance from one role to the next, to the next, to the next. That was the idea. And because it was clear and has always been clear that men are ordained as presbyters. Why? Why can't women be ordained as presbyters? Because there is fatherhood and motherhood in the church. And the the liturgy, though it is not a stage presentation, has a, a, a... a dramatic uh, uh, dimension. And the priest stands in for the persona Christi. He stands in for Christ, who's the celebrant of the Mass. The deacon stands in for the angels, as does the subdeacon and the acolytes. The congregation is the bride of Christ. So there's this acting out of liturgical roles. That probably is where it comes from. In the ancient world, this would have been obvious because the role of woman as mother is a very exalted role. Uh, um, we tend to think it isn't important that a woman is just a mother. Just a mother, that phrase should make you crazy. The highest role a human being can have is the giver of life. And and in a sense, the ordination of men, I think, is a kind of affirmative action on the part of the Holy Spirit that, that a woman can do anything I can do, essentially, in terms of work. A woman can be a perfectly good doctor or engineer or lawyer, But there's something a woman can do that I cannot do. We can both engender life, but only a woman can carry a child. A woman creates a home. The role of male and female in traditional life and in the scriptures and in the life of the church are very clear that motherhood is a a role of great dignity. The Blessed Mother wasn't ordained because she didn't need to be ordained. So This is not convincing to modern feminists. In fact, it's downright irritating to modern feminists. That said, the liturgical roles were reserved to men. What happened was you encouraged children, young boys, to do this, to consider the possibility of a priestly vocation. That canoe is over the waterfall. In the Old Mass, it is appropriate to to continue the tradition of males in the uh, liturgy where the Old Mass is allowed by Episcopal consent. In the New Mass, the role is different. Now, back to my exagrin, I am opposed to children serving at the altar. Now, some people are quite mature when they're 10, and some people are children when they're 50. However, if I was king of any castle, which I am not, I would say I don't want anybody serving at the altar who confer- has not made their confirmation. And at St. Lambert's, we would have people dressed in the in an appropriate uh, garment—not not an alb, not a not a cassock. Those are, those are, not appropriate uh, uh, vestments. Uh, I think for the non 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 server or non clergy in the Novus Ordo, we would have them in these you know, those graduation robes with a, a cowl that was in a liturgical color, and you would have people who were ninety sitting next to people who were twenty. The lectors, the communion ministers, the mass servers were all dressed in this. And, it, it, you know, I have had people running up in purple sweatsuits to help at communion. That's absolutely inappropriate. Uh, I, I think that, that, that the idea of having children do this, I am absolutely opposed to it. So if, you're, if your daughter at tennis made her confirmation and is a mature person, it's fine for her to be at the altar in the Novus Ordo. If she's not mature, you know, this kind—I I know of no self-respecting 13-year-old boy or 10-year-old boy who's going to sit next to some girl uh, uh, in a in a full-length formal. It just—things have changed so radically in society that I think the idea of children altar servers is, is inappropriate. I really do. I, and people get angry when they hear me say this, but— It's just my experience that that when you have kids serving at the altar, what happens is when they turn 13, 14, get to high school, say, well, that's what kids do. I don't do that anymore. No, no. If you're in confirmation, make a decision. How are you going to serve the Lord in the world, in the church, and in the liturgy? I want to be a reader. Okay, you've made your confirmation. We'll teach you how to, and if you can do it, we'll teach you how to be a lector at church. We'll teach you how to be a server at church. Must make their confirmation. That's that's what I feel about it. And you know, just uh, the voice in my head saying we got to move on. But one more thing, you know, Gregorian chant is, of course, the ancient tradition of the church. No, it's not. Gregorian chant isn't the ancient tradition of the church. Ro- old Roman chant is, which sounds Byzantine. Look it up. Look it up on the web. Do find YouTube. Old Roman chant. That was what the mass sounded like the year 250 A.D. Gregorian chant came in later. It was a simplification of the old Roman chant that everyone could sing. So if you think Gregorian chant is this ancient stuff, it's not. Old Roman chant is. You see, change happens. It should happen organically and gradually and reasonably. But change does happen. And to say that that things are not going to change, well, they're going to change. The world changes, and the church responds to it. We don't change in the church because, well, it's fashionable— Everybody's interested in what's fashionable and what's in in the church and in the world. Remember the saying, he who marries the spirit of an age soon finds himself a widower. And in the church, we have a tendency to say, oh, let's bless this union and let's do that. and Let's follow this. No, no. It's a good way to ruin the church. We change organically because this seems to be what the Lord wants, not what society wants, what we want. However, change happens. Now... I know that that's a lot to swallow, and I think of myself as very traditional, and I love the Old Mass. But change happens, and I think we need not to consult uh, the committee and not to consult, uh, take a census, and not do what we think, this is what I like and what I want. What does the Lord want in this situation? What does the Lord want? Seek the Lord. Okay, enough. We'll go to a break. Oh, 888 Sorry to yell at all of you, but hey, it's a nice way to make a living. 888 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash UDallas. When it's not always raining, there'll be days like this. When there's no one complaining, there'll be days like this. Everything falls into place like the flick of a switch. Yep, we're doing Motown to welcome Detroit. Hello, Detroit. It's a little close to my heart. Got a lot of cousins there still. All right, uh, let's let's move along. Let's go to the word of the day. You know that whole screed I just just vented my spleen on. Does Father Simon like altar girls? No, I don't like altar girls, and I don't like altar boys either. I'd rather have mass servers, huh? Yeah, I, I in the Novus Ordo, I do not—I really think it's time to get past, but it's so cute when the kids are up there, and it's really good for them. No, it's not. Who cares what—the liturgy is the liturgy, and to use the liturgy for a political purpose or to make a point, whether it is on the right or the left, is horrible. It's a blasphemy. You don't use the things of God to make a statement one way or t- other. That said, let us go to the word of the day. We've already had the gong, and the word of the day is Purim. Purim means lots, as in as in to cast lots. And of course, we have a lot on which we build a house. Then we have a lot, which is a bunch of stuff. And that, these are all from the same old English word, which means uh, something that just sort of comes your way. And to cast lots is to throw dice or to throw uh, knuckle bones or to, to throw Lord knows what. And let those things make a random decision. And the reason that the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Lots, is because in the book of Esther, the evil Haman, who believed in divination and casting lots and all those things, he, he cast lots to find the appropriate day on which to kill all the Jews hence it's called the feast or the, the 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 feast of Purim, the feast of lots and it is one of the most fun jewish holidays it's it's not one of the non torah holidays, so you can drive to a distant synagogue. And Jews dress up. I remember calling it Hebrew Halloween, and Rabbi Lefkowitz thought that was most appropriate. I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz and his boys one year, they dressed up in zoot suits. Seeing the rabbi in a zoot suit was pretty funny. He usually wore very solemn clothing. And they throw, when when the name of, of Mordecai is mentioned, they throw candy to the children in the synagogues. And and they they when the name of Haman the evil Haman is mentioned they they make noise with noisemakers. It's a great fun feast. They read the entire scroll of Esther twice on that feast of Purim, the feast of Lots, and uh, um, it's called the whole Megillah because the word Megillah is a scroll. The big Megillah is the Torah. The whole Megillah is the Book of Esther. So. Now you know more than you need to know, as a Gentile, as a Christian, about the Feast of Lots, but it is a celebration of the of the um, of the survival of the Jews under one of their first big anti-Semitic persecutions, and it is fascinating to me how that has gone on through their history. And uh, but the Lord has been faithful. So, at any rate, just a thought. All right, let's move on to phone calls. You know, I'd be lost without a telephone. Hey, don't go away. I want to talk to you. <laughs> Cindy, don't go away. I want to talk to you. What can I do for you, Cindy? Oh, my question is, <clears throat> uh, people that use sorcery, can they uh, transfer afflictions from one person to another person? And if, if so, is it only pertainable mostly to people that are that haven't been practicing the faith very well? Or can anybody, even those that uh, go to Mass regularly, can they... Uh, yeah, victim of it as well. Huge question. I want to tell you what I think, but I may be wrong about this. I remember hearing, you know, I have a number of friends who are exorcists. <laughs> That's the salt shaker. Take it with a grain of salt. I have a number of friends who are exorcists, and uh, they suffer horribly. I, I have a good friend who's an exorcist who, who is always getting pushed over in parking lots and, and uh, just afflicted. Uh, he was narrowly killed in, uh, just escaped death in a uh, car accident not long ago and uh, yeah I mean he's in a constant spiritual battle and the devil can afflict us and the devil fights people who are baptized in a state of grace however I would say that that uh, I remember hearing a story of a Brahmin uh, in India who was asked about curses he said oh yes the curses work wonderfully but they don't work well against Christians because a Christian has a, a little cross marked on their forehead. Uh, and and that protects them. So, you know, I would say that in general, to stay in a, if someone is in a state of grace and practicing the faith, that they are not subject to the more extreme uh, uh, effects of sorcery or or demonic uh, participation. Uh, however, those things are very real, and therefore we avoid them you know that uh, I, I was just telling someone that he shouldn't go to the opening of his uh, i was it's it's uh, some relatives uh, shop where they sell tarot cards and witchcraft items and you know don't don't say that you know you don't approve that's not the point tell them you're scared and you should be so I would say that uh, um, they cannot transfer afflictions they can transfer afflictions from one being to another i I remember living growing living up among or spending much of my ministry with Puerto Ricans, um, they have a form of Caribbean witchcraft, not unlike the, uh, the voodoo of Haiti uh, or the Santeria of Cuba, which is uh, uh, the Condomble of, of Brazil, which is, you know, people have seen that, that an illness can be transferred to an animal. And it, it's just a horrible thing because, you know, the devil, every good, every, every good lie has a little truth in it. So the devil gives you a little truth, and then he's got you. Uh, I remember the story of a guy who uh, uh, got some lucky numbers from a voodoo practitioner and won a huge lottery prize. And then the rest of his life, he was getting numbers, and he died impoverished and enslaved uh, to this horrible habit. So the devil throws out a little truth and gets you in with a big lie. So avoid those things, even when they seem to work. But that idea that of transferring an, an evil from one person to another, if a person is already enthralled to the devil, I would say, yes, that is quite possible. Uh, in other words, if a person is not practicing the faith and is not in a state of grace, then there's a danger. Does that answer your question, Cindy? Well, it pretty much it does, yes. Yeah, and I would say uh, if you're in a state of grace— uh, uh and 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 prayed up as we say uh you're, you're not in any danger um uh, Jesus said greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There are exceptions there are such things as victim souls, that sort of thing but in general to be in a state of grace is is the absolute best protection against the devil that I know of. All right, thanks for listening thanks for calling in. Let's go to Karen from Chicago, Illinois. Are you with us Karen? Yes, I am. <laughs> Good. What can I do for I was, you? Go on. I was wondering about the case of um, uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen. Yes. it was right before COVID um, shut everything down, and he was—they were supposed to have the big celebration down in Peoria, and nothing has been. Uh, I haven't heard about it since, and I was wondering where, what. Um, and then, and then I heard New York was uh, petitioning something that they wanted to re-examine something, but. I was wondering where where they are in that in that Have they it's like stalled. Yes, so, you know I I wish I could answer your question, but I I really can't. I don't know what's going on with the canonization process for Fulton Sheen, but I think that that one of the things about the canonization process, it has to wait. You know, we're in a great rush to canonize saints these days, but you know this is a process that traditionally is a very slow process and is really kind of uh, directed by the Lord. You know, that, that that it becomes absolutely... Remember what a canonized saint is. There are lots of saints with small s's. Everyone is supposed to be a saint. So if someone goes to heaven, they're a saint. The word saint just means holy, dedicated to the Lord. But a canonized saint, that's... We should think of a canonized saint as kind of a living Bible. That, that, that they are... Uh, uh, examples of how to live the Christian faith. And there are some people who are appropriate for a certain time and other people are appropriate for another time in terms of the, the, their lives as examples and their writings as being pertinent to the current situation. And that process yeah. is and should be largely in the hands of the Lord. It isn't a political process. So as for Fulton Sheen, I do not know where we are with this, uh, but if if he's to be a canonized saint if he's to be one of these examples of of christian teaching and Christian life it's going to happen in God's time well, so we, sh- we sure do need one now and he has led i mean he is has- Oh, he's a great man. Oh, I remember. Yes. Oh, yeah, a great man. A great man. People are still watching his and listening to his words of wisdom. And that may be why he's not canonized. He's he's still contemporary. Who knows? This is in the hands of the Lord, and I think that that's, that's, you know, we have to trust God in that. You know, I remember Fulton Sheen from my youth. uh, Actually, his family lived in the town I grew up in, uh, in LaGrange, Illinois. Uh, But um, why the Lord has not done this. You know, we think, well, why isn't the church doing this? I think, yeah, I think we have to leave it in the hands of the Lord. Well, I hope that helps. Let's go to Rita from Northern California. What can I do for you, Rita? I've only Hi, got 60 Father, seconds. Good. Oh, thank good. Thank you for your priesthood. Well, I thank you. Thank what... you for your priesthood. Yes. I just wanted to say I agree with you that girls shouldn't serve in the Novus Ordo as altar servers. However, my daughter did it for four years and mm-hmm. did an excellent job, but I... I, now that I'm in now, Latin, right? Well, he, did that. you hear what I said? That in the Novus Ordo, I don't think girls should serve, I don't think boys should serve. I don't think children should serve in it. That I have nothing against women on the altar in the Novus Ordo. Uh, where the, the liturgy is in the hands of the bishops, and, and we have, they're, they're the ones who God has put in that position. However, we need servers at the altar who are mature and committed, and to use... The, the liturgy for anything but the worship of God is inappropriate. Altar servers.